0: If you would, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah chapter 32. As you know, last week we looked at John the Baptist as a pattern of a true preacher. And I'm reminded again of the words of Isaiah in chapter 40 as he foretold the preaching of John the Baptist and the reason as to why he was to preach. This is the reason that we preach, to comfort God's people. Comfort ye, comfort ye. God said, My people, saith your God. The true preacher is to speak comfortably to Jerusalem, to God's people, God's church. And how do we speak comfortably? To the people of God? Well, first we've got to understand who the people of God are. You see, the religion of this world will tell you that it's the whole world, everyone in the world. And John three sixteen is their proof. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And of course, the first question that comes to my mind is if God loved the whole world, then the whole world's going to be saved. There's not any that God loved or any that Christ died for that will wind up in hell, not a one. So, who did Christ save? Who are the people that God calls His? Whosoever believeth in Him, they shall not perish, but have everlasting life. God loves and calls those who believe on Christ. That's who God calls His people. This is not speaking of everyone in the world. You know that. But those who believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who are these whosoever's? Whosoever believes in Christ. If the whole world believed on Christ, then there'd be no cause, no reason for a place called hell. For God sent his His Son not into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on Him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. This is the reason men and women are condemned that light has come into the world and men and women love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Isaiah said, speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem. How does a preacher do that? Well, God says, tell her that her warfare is accomplished. There's nothing for her to do. It's all been accomplished. Just trust and rest in Jesus Christ. Tell her that her iniquity is pardoned. You know who that word pardon means something to? One that's in prison, one that is in bondage. This speaks of a full pardon of sin. You know, a full pardon is defined as an entitlement to an expunction, a removing, a complete removing of all arrest records relating to the conviction and the conviction itself is removed. A pardon from God means approval from Him. It's to be accepted of God. And according to Leviticus chapter 22, verse 21, it has to be perfect for God to accept it. We cannot provide perfection. Only Christ can. So if a sinner is pardoned by God, then that sinner is made perfect. And the only way to be pardoned and the only way to be made perfect is to be accepted in the Beloved. And that Beloved is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a very simple message. So according to John 3.16, whosoever believes in Jesus Christ will not perish but have everlasting life. Do you believe in Christ? Do you believe on Christ? Is He your everything? Is He your righteousness before God? Is the God of heaven and earth trying to save? No. Does God, our Creator, want to save but has to have our cooperation in order to do so? Well, knowing something of myself, friends, my inability, my unwillingness by nature to have Christ to rule over me, I don't find any comfort at all in that. None at all. The only comfort I find as a fallen sinner is to know beyond a shadow of a doubt the salvation is of the Lord. It's the Lord's doing. It's by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I never grow tired of hearing that message. No believer does. It's knowing that God has the power to save me. It's knowing that God can give me the ability to believe, to make me willing to believe. It's knowing that God can overthrow my will and His will be done. That's where my comfort is found. It's found in knowing that God can do anything and everything. And I put emphasis on those two words, anything and everything. There's nothing that God cannot do. Okay, Jeremiah chapter 32. In verse 17, the prophet Jeremiah makes a very... Competent declaration concerning His great God. In just a few short words, He proclaims the sovereignty, the omnipotence of His God, and He proclaims that His God, He said, there, there, and to His God, that there is nothing too hard for Thee. You see that? Lord, You can do anything and You can do everything. There's nothing that You can't do. Do we believe that? Just a few verses later, the Lord asked Jeremiah, the same prophet who had made uh, this confident statement, he asked him, is there anything too hard for me? Verse 27. And this is why a true child of God never brags on their faith. The only bragging that a believer does is in and on their Lord, who is faithful. You see, we may believe as to have no doubt about the Lord's ability to do anything and everything, and yet, because of the unperceivable unbelief that's within us, we may not be prepared to put our faith into practice for ourselves. Jeremiah might say to the Lord, there's nothing too hard for Yet, deep within the recesses of his own heart, he finds so, there's so much mistrust that the Lord finds it necessary to put him in remembrance in the matter, in the form of a question to ask him: Is there anything? Is there anything too hard for me? The Lord had given Jeremiah a great deal of insight concerning his own heart. Speaking to Jeremiah directly in chapter 17, the Lord said, Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, whose hope whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be a tree planted by the waters that spreadeth out her roots by the river and shall not see when he cometh, but her leaf shall be green and shall not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. And then in the very next sentence, the Lord warned Jeremiah and us of the enemy within. Did you hear me? There's an enemy within us. And he had him to write this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And then he asked the question, who can know it? He said, I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. And I've heard it said often in my life that we are our own worst enemies. You know what? I believe that's so. There's a great adversary within us. What's an adversary? One's opponent in a contest, conflict, or dispute. According to the Lord God of heaven and earth, there's nothing more deceitful, nothing more desperately wicked than our hearts by nature. So wicked, so deceitful that God says, deceitful above all things, everything. And that we cannot know it. I hear folks say, I've said it myself, well, I know my heart. Well, we don't really. We don't know the depths of the depravity of our heart. Often the Lord gives us a whiff of it, and it's not pleasant. The Lord revealed this same thing to Moses in the book of Genesis when he wrote about man's wickedness in the days of Noah. Moses heard it straight from the mouth of God and he wrote, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Why? Because it was great in the man. And that every imagination of the thoughts of what? The heart. Only evil continually. That's what God says our hearts are by nature. I would say that our hearts are a great adversary in their fallen state by nature. They're against us. Outside of the believer's union with the Lord Jesus, our hearts, our actions, our, our way of life is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked and only evil continually. And you hear these things all the time. This We, we talk about this. Brothers and sisters, this world's religion gives way too much credit to Satan and does not discredit his rivalry enough. And when I speak of his rivalry, my rivalry, I'm talking about me, myself, and I, that heart within me. And God makes His people aware of who and what they are by nature and of who and what they are apart from Christ. We know little about the unbelievers that we really are. Paul said, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth what? No good thing. Not one good thing. The Apostle Paul said, For the good that I would do, I do not. The things that I hate, that I do. And what was Paul's conclusion concerning himself? Oh, wretched man that I am. Not I was, but that I am. (laughs) Job said, what is man that God would be mindful of him? And then Job said this about himself. I abhor myself. I hate myself because of what I am. The greatest men and women of faith will find a great deal of skepticism lurking within their own hearts, waiting for the opportunity to show itself. And only God can overrule And only God can rule that within and without. Lord, have mercy on us. He's plenteous in mercy. Well, Brother David, I thought you were going to try to comfort us. (laughs) Well, I am. But we have to hear the bad news before we hear the good news. And then there is no bad news after we hear the good. I preached out of this text, this passage, right at three years ago. It's a different message than what I have prepared for today. But the story found in this chapter gives us a great example of what I'm endeavoring to say. So let me first give you a quick background of Jeremiah chapter 32. A powerful enemy of Israel, the Chaldeans, had surrounded Israel. Jerusalem had warned, or excuse me, Jeremiah had warned the king of Judah that this would happen, according to verse 1. And this was a word of the Lord given to Jeremiah for King Zedekiah. It wasn't Jeremiah's word to the king. It was the Lord's word to the king. And you know, folks often get upset with the message and they want to shoot the messenger. Uh, Why? Because they can't get their hands around the one who sent the message. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what King Zedekiah did. He threw Jeremiah in prison for prophesying and warning him of what the Lord had said. And this prophecy from Jeremiah made King Zedekiah mad. And it made him look weak as the protector of Israel. But you know what? Zedekiah wasn't the protector of Israel. God was. The kings and presidents and the leaders of this world today, Why they're not in control of this world. God is. Jeremiah told the king the truth. And the king threw Jeremiah into prison for doing so. You know, I've discovered, I know you have too, that people don't really want to hear the truth. They want to hear what they believe the truth to be. But what Jeremiah told the king came to pass. You know what? What God says always comes to pass. Amen. Now, while Jeremiah is in the prison, the Lord told him that he, his, his cousin, uh, his uncle's son, would come to him in the, in the prison and want to sell him a piece of ground and that Jeremiah was to buy it. And the Lord tells him to buy it and tells him for how much and He tells him to get all the paperwork filled out correctly. He, said, Tell him, he tells him to have these papers witnessed, notarized, whatever, sealed. He tells him to have everything done according to the law and have them put away in a safe place. And naturally and worldly speaking, this would not have been a wise investment to make. It wasn't a great deal of money, but it was a significant amount for a profit. And remember, Jeremiah is buying a piece of property that would very soon become worthless and would be taken from him pretty much as soon as he purchased it. What sane and sensible man, what good businessman, would buy a piece of land that he knew was going to be immediately taken away from him. This is exactly... What preachers who believe that you can lose your salvation do? I find no comfort in that. If I can be saved by something that I do, then I can be lost by not doing something that I should or by doing something that I shouldn't. Do you find any comfort in that? Not when God has revealed to us what we are and what we're capable of, We're not saved by works of righteousness that we've done, but according to His mercy He saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly, the Scripture says, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. In other words, if we're saved by the works and righteousness of Christ, then we cannot be lost. I've told you many times that Brother Henry was once asked if he believed in one saved, always saved. You know, I've had people uh, define, quote, Baptists that way. Oh, you're one of them that believes one saved, always saved. And someone asked Brother Mahan that once. And he said, well, it all depends on who saved you. If you saved yourself, you can be lost. And you can be. But if God saves you, you can't be. (laughs) Doesn't that give you some comfort? If an omnipotent, sovereign God saves me, then the same God keeps me. Because the Lord Himself said, none can pluck you from His hand. Believing, some will say believing like that will cause you to live in sin. We already live in sin. Jeremiah, buying this piece of ground, would show great faith in his God and in his God's, in his God's Word. And Jeremiah says again in verse seventeen, "Ah, oh Lord God, behold, Thou hast made the heaven and the earth by Thy great power and stretched out arm And there is nothing too hard for thee. But then, as I said, ten verses later, we see that the Lord Himself reminds Jeremiah of what he had Himself confessed. And in verse 27, the Lord asks Jeremiah, Is there anything too hard for me? Do you really believe, Jeremiah, that there's nothing too hard for me. Do we really believe it? I think it's a question we ought to ask ourselves often. You see, beloved, <clears throat> the strongest in faith, even someone like Jeremiah, has to be reminded over and over and over again that God is an almighty, powerful God. Yes, sir. He can do anything. He can do everything. They have to be reminded that their God is in the heavens. He's done whatsoever He hath pleased. They have to be reminded that whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did He in heaven and earth and the seas and all deep places. They have to be reminded that God works all things after the counsel of His own will. And He does so for the good of His people, Ephesians eleven and Romans 8.28. They have to be reminded again and again that all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, or we'd be puffed up. And that He, God, doth according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand. None can question Him. None can ask God what He's doing. What are You doing, God? Anything and everything I want to. Nothing is too hard for Him. And that is why God's people are often inclined to pray, Lord, I believe, but help Thou mine unbeliever." We say that we could trust God in a mighty storm on the sea, but we have trouble trusting Him in the small winds that trouble us right now in the light affliction that we experience. We say that we can depend on God throughout death and in eternity, but we have difficulty trusting and depending on God now in the trifling matters that are bothering us today. Is there anything great or small that's too hard for God? God challenges us all with that question. Is there anything too hard for me? I ask you, Is there anything too hard for the Lord? First, we have to consider that the hardest, most inconceivable things have already been done by God. What about creation? Jeremiah said there in verse 17 that Jehovah had made the heaven and the earth by His great power and stretched out arm. So if God can do that, nothing else is too hard for Him. You see, there was a time when there was nothing and God dwelt alone. There was no raw material out of which to construct the universe, yet it pleased God to do so. Only a sovereign, omnipotent God can create something out of nothing. What can He not do after doing that? With whom did God take counsel? Who hath instructed God? Of His own will, He piled up the mountains. By Himself, He dug the fountains of the deep. Everything was in darkness until God said, Light be, and there was light. He alone divided the land from the sea. He alone painted the sky with the clouds. He bent the rivers to flow as He willed. He held the oceans to their boundaries. They can come no further than God allows them to come. The earth He created was void without form, darkness upon the deep. And God simply spoke, let there be, and there was grass and herbs and trees and waters full of fish and birds filled the sky. Then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God created He Him. Male and female created He them. If God can do that, He can do anything. Whenever we doubt the power of God, we ought to read the book of Genesis, the first chapter anyway. Secondly, what about God's work of destruction? Over and over again in the Scriptures, especially the Old Testament Scriptures, the Lord shows us how easily He can rid Himself of adversaries. When God's patience and long-suffering in the days of Noah reached its limits, God said, My spirit's not always going to strive with man. He had enough. God got fed up. And down came torrential rain with tremendous power. So much so that the mountains were covered and the whole earth became a sheet of water. And God had determined that He would destroy all flesh from off the face of the earth except for a few, eight souls to be exact and He housed them within the ark. He put them in Christ. It was the power of God in His anger that overthrew uh, in a moment Sodom and Gomorrah and the neighboring cities thereof with brimstone and salt and burning. It was the power of God that destroyed Egypt with the plagues and preserved His people without so much a fly, a frog, a gnat, being found in the land of Goshen where God's people live. This is God's doing, friends. That's why God raised up Pharaoh. Why? That he might show his power and that his name might be declared throughout all the earth. It was the Lord's high hand and outstretched arm that He smote the firstborn in Egypt and brought forth His people when they came to the Red Sea. It was the power of God that parted the Red Sea for His people to cross on dry ground. And it was the power of God that brought the waters back together and drowned Pharaoh's army. This is the Lord's doing. Is there anything too hard for Him? Thirdly, this is seen in the sovereign power of providence. He led his people through the wilderness for 40 years. All the while, they never, they never uh, plowed, they never farmed, they never gathered fruit or fig or olive uh, tree. They, God dropped manna from heaven for millions and yielded a flowing fountain of water from a rock that followed Israel from place to place. Who but God could do that? Is there anything too hard for Him? While their garments never got old, neither did their feet swell. I can't get through a day anymore without my feet swelling. Can you imagine 40 years of walking in the wilderness? My, my. If God can accomplish this great work, Surely, he can take care of our small families. These are the great things that God can do. And then, fourthly, we see that God can do anything and everything, and that nothing is too hard for him in the great work of redemption. Amen. Every other display of God's powerful work, dear friends, you've got to take a back seat to the Son of God coming to earth to be born of a virgin sheltered in a stable, and cradled in a manger. God Almighty came that way. It's the wonder of wonders that God should take upon Himself the form of a servant made in the likeness of man, made Himself of no reputation. You see, I have no reputation. That's easy for me to do. But God Almighty made Himself of no reputation. I am worthy of nothing but being a servant. But God Almighty made Himself a servant to serve the needs of a sinful people. My, my, what a wonder of wonders. And amazing still, He took upon Himself the sin of His people. He was made sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. God became a man to bear man's awful transgressions. And Christ alone took the burden of that punishment that you and I deserved, mm-hmm. drinking the cup of infinite judgment and wrath to the fullest in the believing sinner's room instead. Yes, Have you ever heard such? Never was God's power seen and His omnipotence so potent as when Christ died upon the cross that chosen sinners might live. Never was His ability to save so powerfully seen as when He led captivity captive and while Himself was bound to the accursed tree. Never was His power so displayed when He defeated Satan, sin, and self and conquered death in His own body on the tree. Now my salvation and your salvation, those who trust in Christ, is certain because nothing is too hard for our Lord and Savior. Nothing. He can do anything, and He can do everything. And then lastly, we can be assured of the things which remain to be done. (laughs) Why, Why do we worry and fret so? Why do we doubt? Full of unbelief. In our best state, we're altogether vanity. You find out all the difficult things that you need to have done for you and then you rest in the fact that it's easy for the Lord to provide your every need. And I again qualify what I say there. I speak of need, not greed. (laughs) There are many things that we desire that we don't need. There's one thing needful. And if you want it, you can have it. One says, well, it would be a great thing for God to deliver me out of all my troubles. After all that God has done, do you doubt that He can? Some might ask, well, then why hasn't He? In most cases, it's, it's well, no, in every case, it's, it's good that we've been afflicted. Why? David said that I might learn thy statutes. That we might learn God's divine appointments. That's why it's good for us. Our affliction teaches us something of God. Our trouble teaches us who's in control and who has the remedy to our troubles. And it causes us to cry out unto Him. It will be through much tribulation that we enter the kingdom of God. Mr. Spurgeon once told a story about a poor man that had no bread and no food for his family. And one of his children, his oldest boy, said, You know, Dad, I I I heard in in Sunday school class that one time God sent bread to Elijah by a raven. Maybe he'll do that for us. And the man who was a just a poor cobbler, uneducated, said, Yes, son, he most certainly did. But God does not use birds that way anymore. And he said, not long after that, very just a few minutes after the man had finished speaking, that a rare bird flew in through the open window of his shop and he caught that bird and he put it in a cage. And then just a few minutes later, uh, an employee of a wealthy man's wife came in the shop and asked if they'd seen such and such a bird. And he said, why, yes, it just flew into my shop. I caught it, put it in the cage. Here it is. And And that employee of the woman... Uh, said, well, there's a reward, a sizable reward for for that bird, for the one that finds that bird. And the man got the reward and fed his family. You see, the bird didn't actually bring the bread in its mouth, but the bird was the means to feed the man and his family. And God did it all. God was behind it all. So the question, again, that the Lord challenges us with is, is there anything too hard for the Lord? The Lord told told Jeremiah to buy that piece of ground. The world around him said, you can kiss it goodbye. It's gone, Jeremiah. Your deed is worthless. Your money is wasted. But the Lord said, you put that deed up. It's going to be a while. But that's your land. Don't you give it up. And don't you give up hope. You're going to possess that land. And uh, I think it was 70 years. I may be wrong on that. They were in captivity. But the Lord said that, that piece of ground is going to be worth a whole lot more than 17 shekels of silver. It's going to be priceless. Friends, every believer has purchased A piece of ground just like Jeremiah did. But it didn't cost us anything. The difference is the Lord bought it with His own shed blood. And the deed has been signed legally in that same blood. And it's bought and it's paid for. (laughs) And we build our house upon that land. And our hope upon that precious real estate which is Christ, the solid rock and the rain's going to descend, and the floods are going to come, and the winds are going to blow, and that house on that land, on that rock, will not fall. Why? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? It was founded upon Christ, the rock. It's for sure, it's for certain, and it is forever. Why? The Lord told us. The Lord asked, He answered it. Often the Lord answers us with a question. Is there anything too hard for me? Oh, if you're going through a a struggle now, if you're having trouble believing God in any way, rest in the fact that there's nothing, absolutely nothing too hard for Him. He can do anything and He can do everything.